This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, April 29th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. It's hard to overestimate the profound change brought about by the telegraph. It dramatically reduced the time required for communication across great distances. In short, it shrunk the world. But was it really, as Anthony Comegna describes it, the first technological singularity? We spoke earlier this month. I think the most interesting immediate precursor to the telegraph was actually a system of semaphore signaling, just like lifeguards do. Uh, but Napoleon, this is one of the, the major advances in his military management, was using semaphore operators spread across a battlefield to signal uh, very quickly, almost, you know, relatively speaking, instantaneously across many, many miles of space, perhaps even uh, a country's worth of space, like in a place like Belgium or what would become Belgium in a few decades. And in the United States, businessmen use this. Uh, so, for example, a few months after Morse unveiled his his telegraph and made the first successful tests in, in May of 1844, there was an uh, interesting newspaper article out of New York, I believe, where somebody was claiming that there was for some time already uh, a secret telegraph in operation between Philadelphia and New York uh, by used by businessmen to control the markets, right? But it was actually a semaphore system that was totally out in the open, used since I think 1840 by investors. This is not a secret electric telegraph at all. Uh, but, you know, people wrapped up these older systems in conspiratorial fashion, as Americans are wont to do, with new technologies in development. Um, but these semaphore systems were the fastest way of communicating um, text or script of some kind, um, uh, language. And then of uh, the, the next fastest by, by land transportation in most places was still horseback. So uh, the mail itself carried on horseback for uh, much of the time in the United States. There was controversy around that as well, as you note in this article. Yeah, one of the big advances of the 1820s was the widespread adoption of steam presses. And this meant an explosion of newspaper production and Americans very quickly became the most literate people in world history. They read the most newspapers of anybody on the planet. Uh, newspapers exploded and they they fell in price dramatically. So you have the first penny papers in this period. The cost of printing materials is falling dramatically and it gets easier and easier with steam power to send them to far-flung places. So people are using the mail more and more, especially to ship large bound printed materials because they usually got a discount uh, by by instead of charging by weight, you would charge just as if it was an individual letter, I believe. Um, but publishers especially got heavy discounts from the Postal Service. And because it's a government monopoly that has such a big impact on the way that people think and uh, organize their politics, it, of course, quickly became the major battleground between uh, uh, proponents of, of hot-button issues, so like, like slavery and anti-slavery. Anti-slavery activists who were rich and crazy enough would pool their money together and print a huge amount of anti-slavery materials and ship them in mass to southern cities, especially port cities like Charleston, where, for example, in 1835, uh, in a pro-slavery mob who knew that the, the post office had just received a large shipping of abolitionist materials, stormed into the building 
seize the packages and burn them all in the public square. And meanwhile, the local postmaster, Alfred Huger, uh, kindly looked the other way. So did his boss, the postmaster general under Andrew Jackson, Amos Kendall. Uh, now, the big problem with that is, of course, everybody has an equal right to the mail under the Constitution. Nobody can be excluded. So this set off a huge uh, wave of disaffection in the Democratic Party, especially in places like New York, uh, where we see the birth of the Loco Foco movement that I've talked a lot about here and in direct response to this burning of abolitionist mail. Now, of course, the telegraph and the potential that it offers for near instantaneous and very cheap communication uh, pose exactly the same sort of threat to the pro-slavery system. So what did uh, the anti-slavery activists, what did they, how did they characterize the, the promise of the telegraph specifically? Well, it wasn't just them that characterized it this way. It was virtually everybody who saw some sort of uh, hopeful reasons for progress in the telegraph. You know, everybody who had some sort of hopeful vision for how this technology could be used thought that it would so compress time and space that we could communicate together and touch each other's lives with our ideas like literally no time before in human history. No place on earth would be as deeply interconnected as the United States linked by telegraphs every city. Yeah, you can imagine every industry, every interest group would have uh, a profound interest in being able to communicate more quickly for profits, for uh, organizing uh, groups to execute on some task. I mean, it really could have been truly or what promised to be truly amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, specifically, the anti-slavery people looked to uh, Thomas Clarkson's campaign against the slave trade in, in Britain, which, of course, also took advantage of some of these uh, early form developments. And it was the first real social movement, certainly the first tremendously successful one. And, and it, looked, it was based on a policy paper. I'm sure we'll have you know. <laughs> Anyway, go ahead. Sure, sure it was. <laughs> Slave resistance, yeah, not based on that. Anyhow, um, so yeah, you know, they looked to that as a model and something that could be the sorts of efforts that could be dramatically expanded to to just soaring new heights with a technology like the telegraph. And then you have people like John C. Calhoun on the exact other end of the spectrum who might have looked at this as one of his famous chords of union that uh, he said by 1850 were snapping one by one and pulling the union apart. But then plenty of pro-slavery people thought these would be the new chords that bind us together because we in the pro-slavery central government will be able to control the flow of information. We'll monopolize telegraphy. We'll take control of it and master the flow of the information just like we did with the postal system. So the key difference, at least nominally, uh, between the postal service where everyone should have equal access to it and the telegraph, is that the telegraphs were privately owned? Well, Congress was originally going to, I mean, they appropriated $30,000 for Morse's plan to build a, a line from uh, D.C. to Baltimore. And uh, John Tyler, one of the unsung awful presidents, signed that bill. Um, and the thinking was that this is within the purview of the post, so Postal Service. It will, it will help postal delivery. It's part of you know, our necessary and proper duties or whatever to run a postal service. So a telegraph line would be viewed as a postal road? Postal delivery method, yes, sure. 
And uh, so they thought there's there's at least some reason why Congress might want to monopolize this. And plenty of people said we can't let powerful businessmen get in charge of it. We can't let private speculators drive up prices. There's going to be no way for private owners to profit from this. And so what they'll do is they'll petition for the nominal monopoly of it, and then they'll drive up rates so nobody will be able to use it unless they you know pay out the nose for to uh, to the owners. So the government has to take control of it. People offered all sorts of reasons, including in in newspapers named things like the Jeffersonian Republican. So, you know, the free market kind of liberalism that we think predominated in this period was was really only held by a small number of radicals, my loco focos. Uh, But Congress eventually decided there's no way for us to profit from this either. And so they just left it to private hands. And that is something that I'm sure all of us wish happened more often today. Uh, But thank God it happened then because, you know, to the great benefit of humanity, Congress had no monopoly on telegraphy. So what did what did that bring us? The the fact that there were this became a private development, private infrastructure uh, for the purposes of communication. What what did that bring? Well, I suppose it's important to note that for a while Morse did own a, a personal patent on on the telegraph. Uh, so his firm was, which Amos Kendall, the former postmaster general and censor under Jackson, he was one of the main investors and promoters of Morse's Telegraph and the America, I think it was the American Telegraph Company, something like that. Um, and so isn't it interesting that one of the period's greatest censors was also one of the greatest investors in this new form of revolutionary technology. Uh, and it, it, the, the main thing that it did was it did truly revolutionize the way people live their lives. And within a few decades, a few generations, this technology was global. Uh, one of the best books I read as an undergraduate was, was on the history of the telegraph and the internet in China. And it was fascinating uh, the way that telegraphy impacted countries that we think of as hyper-agrarian and, and rural at the time. Uh, but the more the telegraph integrated communities around the world, the more people shared their ideas globally. And it really absolutely transformed things. The, the flow of goods, the flow of information, the, the flow of history itself was to- absolutely changed by the telegraph. It's almost hard to, to capture the full scope of it. And this is why I put it in terms of the technological singularity. And this is, this is something that is in vogue right now, especially among computer scientists, because they're talking about the uh, uh, supposedly incoming new singularity where uh, artificial intelligence becomes indistinguishable from human intelligence. And at that point, presumably, that artificial intelligence will have the ability to improve itself on its own at dramatically faster rates than human beings are able to do it. And try to imagine what kinds of changes that would make to our world. Broadly, what it sounds like, uh, if I were to try to draw parallels, uh, you know, the the telegraph was part of a massive upheaval in uh, America, and I can I it's possible to th- to look at the internet today and how that has developed and say the internet is now part of a massive upheaval in the United States. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's probably more accurate, though, to look at those things as the substrate. Those are the the informative substrate on which the true singularity or the, the real change rests. Now, the, the reason it's called a singularity 
is that you cannot see beyond the change itself to what the world will look like after it. This is in, in geometry, the singularity is a point on a circle where you can't see the rest of the curve. So imagine if you're you know, on the street looking at a circular building, on each side, the left and the right, there's a, a, a point where that's the last bit of the circle you can see and you can't see the back of the building anymore. In astrophysics, a singularity is a black hole where nothing escapes from it and you can't see the actual black hole. Oh, I guess I have to sort of, we have to adjust that now <laughs> that we have some sort of an image of a black hole out there. Uh, you, you still really can't see it, even with that picture that's out there right now. Uh, you, you, it's a reconstructed image of its effects on light. So that's what we're observing. We're observing how it affects the rest of the world around it. But we still cannot actually predict what is going to happen to society after one of these technological singularities. Nobody, people had all, all sorts of wild imaginations about what the telegraph would mean. The, the spiritualist community, including some of my favorite early libertarians like Francis Whipple, uh, they believe that it would help us communicate with the dead and revive them uh, in the in the you know bring them back from the dead. So they looked at at electricity reanimating corpses, and they believed at least that if they used telegraphs, sort of like a, a early Ouija board, that they communicated with spirits. They believed in the material existence of spiritual beings. So they were a part of the physical world too. And using technology, we can talk to them. And this was the basis on which they built a whole new religion. And they charged their auras as spirit batteries and did spiritual telegraphy to communicate with these people. And, uh, you know, they, they thought we could conquer death with this technology. And obviously a lot of this stuff didn't pan out. But the point is, we can't predict what's actually going to happen. Instead, the telegraph gave us this, this new jubilant sense of nationalism. Americans thought that that they had escaped this problem of classical republics that had always been a problem, that they would get too big, they would get too powerful, overextended, and they would be conquered either by enemies from abroad or from factions within, right? And it would fall into, into decadence and decay and, and uh, collapse ultimately. And they thought, no longer. We, we've conquered that problem by the, inventing the telegraph. And uh, now we're going to have one giant united continental empire spreading Republican ideas around the globe at the speed of sound or whatever, <laughs> whatever speed telegraphs went. Uh, and, you know, by the 1860s, there was a transatlantic cable that was operating. So this uh, telegraphs went across the ocean and, you know, around the British Empire. The British used it to control their their imperial possessions, especially India, like never before. And, and instead, of, instead of this amazing world where we conquer death and we build cities in the stars like Walt Whitman thought, we got the 20th century, the century of the most horrific statism we've probably ever seen. And the, the height of world, world uh, forced labor and slavery ever in World War II. And, you know, mountains of corpses thanks to the state's ability to control people. Anthony Comegna is the now former assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. His article on the telegraph and its power appears in the latest issue of Reason magazine. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.